Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We thank you for your goodness, your love, your mercy. We thank you for the way you've designed your universe to run. We ask that your spirit will join us. We might come to know you more fully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number six today in the quarterly book of Acts, and it's the ministry of Peter. But I wanted to follow up on something uh, last week. If those were here, remember we talked about the Ten Commandments, and I gave the uh, evidences why I think the Ten Commandments were written on sapphires. So I won't recap all that evidence this week. It's in the notes again this week for those who want to see that. Um, But I think we made a compelling case that it was uh, that the set written by God, given to Moses, was written on sapphire. After the um, class, a couple new points came up that I wanted to follow up and share with you. First, Karen Covey came up and told me that she'd been in a conversation with somebody who told her that, uh, you remember the woman who had the issue of blood and touched the hem of Christ's uh, garment and was healed? That what she actually touched was the tassel that has the blue thread that represents the law of God. And so I went back and I checked the Greek New Testament, and sure enough, the word in the Greek New Testament um, that is translated there as the hem of his garment is the word for the uh, uh, fringe and or tassel, same word for the tassel. So it is likely that she touched the tassel, representing the law of love, which is the law of life, and symbolically that would be very consistent with the, the healing that went through there. And then I received an email from online listener Eric uh, Sugaski. Uh, who said that he agrees that the first set of Ten Commandments were most likely written on sapphire, but Moses broke that set, and then God instructed Moses to chisel out of stone for the second set, and it says in Exodus 34, 1 and 4, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded and carried the two stone tablets in his hand. So the second set were likely not written on sapphire. It was likely on some form of granite or other stone chiseled out by Moses. Now this becomes fairly interesting if you think about Bible symbolism. Um, because in the Bible symbolism, is there anything different if we accept the uh, evidence of the first set written on sapphire, the second set chiseled out by Moses not on sapphire, so one difference between the two set is the stones they were written on. Can you think of any other difference between the two sets of the commandments? Did he write something different? Yes, he did. If you remember the Sabbath commandment in the first set in Exodus 20, what is the reason given for remembering the Sabbath in the first set? Ah, he's the Lord who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all. In other words, design law is the reason for the Sabbath in the first set. And they're written on the sapphire. But they broke that set. Second set now written on granite. What's the reason for the Sabbath in the second set? Deuteronomy. I'm the Lord who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. I'm powerful. Do you understand the difference? First set, God is trying to teach them the reason to worship me and my law is because I'm the creator and I build reality and this is how my law, they couldn't comprehend, they couldn't handle, their worship. that set's broken. So he meets them where they are and said, okay, start, worship me because I'm powerful. And what did they say? What was their response? All the Lord said, we will do. And so the set written on stone carved out by man, not carved out by God, was viewed as a system of rules that we have to comply and behave. Imperial law right there. 
from the very beginning, symbolically represented in the two sets of stone. I find it very interesting. And today God is, of course, waiting for a people to come back to present his true character, his true law, and worship, call people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, as it says in Revelation 14. All right, Sabbath lesson. Second paragraph, it says, the conversion of Gentiles was the most controversial issue in the apostolic church. What are your thoughts about that? That's a, that's a, they're taking a position. The most controversial issue in the apostolic church was the conversion of Gentiles. As I thought about it, I thought, well, I think that's related. That's connected. That's an outgrowth of. It's a branch of what I view to be the most controversial issue. But that is not directly the most controversial. In my view, it's a consequence of it. And what is my view of the most controversial issue in the New Testament? That, that the Jews, the genetic descendants of Abraham, were actually in the same boat with the rest of the world, suffering with the same problem and needed the same solution. In other words, the Jews did not have a special path to heaven distinct from the rest of the world. That's what I think the most controversial piece is. They really believed they were special. They stood separate. They stood apart. It was really about their, their ego and their narcissism as a people that they were somehow in a better position than the rest of the world. And including the Gentiles was a consequence of changing this idea, in my view. You and Jesus said that the oracles were with the Jews, from the Jews as well, right? Well, he says that salvation is of the Jews or through Jews. And talking to the Samaritan woman, he said, uh, you know, you, you guys don't even know what you're worshiping. Uh, you're neither going to worship in Jerusalem nor on this mountain, Samaria. You're going to worship in spirit and truth, but salvation is of the Jews, meaning that the Jewish people had a lock on salvation or that, what it said in Genesis, the seed of the woman will crush that's Genesis seed of the woman will crush that. And then it's through Abraham's seed, not seeds. In other words, through Abraham's descendant, meaning Christ, salvation comes. So salvation is coming through Christ, which is a descendant. Of, but the people still needed the same Christ, didn't they? So this remains, this issue remains a controversy today amongst many Christians who think that genetic descendants of Abraham somehow don't suffer the same problem, don't need the same solution, or that they have some other avenue for salvation than the rest of the world that are Christian. It's a commonly taught idea that something different is going to happen with the genetic descendants in Palestine, in the Middle East, as the future unfolds. There'll come a time when they're going to have their, their kingdom reestablished. They're going to begin to have uh, sanctuary services and uh, sacrifice of animals and the temple's going to be reestablished. And, and this whole process is going to start because there's some other avenue for salvation in people's minds other than Christ. The Jews always thought of themselves as having that special relation with God because of genetics. Jesus confronted the leaders in his day, John 8, 34 through 44. I'll read this to you. It says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, 
then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What did, do you think Jesus dealt with this question of uh, their special status because of genetics? And then he compounded it by saying, I could turn these stones into Abraham's children. Right, and, and of course John said that. John the Baptist said, do you think you're special because you're descendants of Abraham? Jesus could, tur- I mean, he said, God could turn these stones into descendants of Abraham. That was a, John the Baptist in John, I think, chapter 2. So what makes, what made someone a child of Abraham? Or what makes someone a child of Abraham? Romans 2, 28 and 29. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward or physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Do you think Paul is saying something different than what Jesus said? No, he's saying you have to have a change of heart. Your heart has to be transformed. Jesus was saying the same thing. If you were really Abraham's descendants, you wouldn't have selfishness, deceit, murder in your heart. You would have love and trust in your heart. Your hearts aren't in harmony with the Father in heaven. You're not descendants of Abraham. Do you you guys realize how much this is not accepted in Christianity today? There's this huge belief that biological descent of Jewish people is special still. In some spiritual way, to have some advantage or different path to salvation. Well, the apostles struggled with this bias as well. It's not only a genetic bias that they have, but that transcended, the genetic bias transcended into their belief systems, and thus they had special traditions and rituals causing them to form a mindset that living like a Jew was what constituted being right with God. Thus, conversion, the new Christians from Judaism believed that conversion was about becoming physically circumcised, dressing differently, eating differently. It became a behavioral, they were being vulnerable to be behaviorally focused, an outworking of the basic misunderstanding of the second set of the law, written on stone, a system of stuff, everything this Lord says we're going to do. We're going to behave right. That's what they think conversion is. The biggest controversy, in my view, was to see reality as it is, that the entire human race suffers from the same condition of being out of harmony with God and his design laws for life, and God, through Christ, provides remedy for all human beings. And that remedy would transform the minds and hearts of all who trust God by removing fear and selfishness and restoring love. The Jews were simply God's agents to help spread the truth about God and the sin problem 
and the solution for it. That's what their special role was, to be his agents, to tell the, the story, to, to help free minds, to teach the, the, the real problem that we're suffering with and God's plan to heal and save. That's why Abraham was going to be a father of how many nations? All nations or many nations is what the Bible says. Not one nation. Yeah. So the question, do we still struggle with similar problems today? Yes. Do we as Christians think there is special status either for the genetic descendants or for certain groups of Christians who belong to certain organizations that they have special status? Do we believe that conversion is the process of joining the right organization, the right denomination, performing the right rituals, avoiding work on the right day, eating the right foods? Is this what we think conversion is? Does this mean, though, that these behaviors, whatever those behaviors might be that you think are important, have actually no bearing at all on being right with God? Can you behave in such a way that will put you right with God? You can't behave in such a way that will put you right with God. Does that mean your behaviors, your choices of how you conduct your life, the way you live, the way you dress, when you go to church, what foods you eat, does, are you, does that mean that it has no bearing then on our relation with God? So think about it this way. If you ingested a poison and it was slowly killing you, and a physician gives you a free antidote that will cure you, and you take it. You begin to experience a change. You feel better. Symptoms are going away. Now, as you've taken the antidote, things are getting better in your life. Did you develop the antidote? Did you provide or create or pay for the antidote? No. And as you've taken it and you're being transformed and getting well, does that mean that your future behavior has no bearing on whether you re-ingest poison? <laughs> or even though you've partaken of the antidote, you could re-ingest more poison and still corrupt yourself. And that's where the behaviors come in. We are having our hearts and minds set right with God through the truth that he revealed that wins us to trust and we open, the Holy Spirit comes and restores in us new motives, new desires. We have love that was not natural to our heart for him and other people. And then we make choices. Having been won from distrust to trust through the work of the Holy Spirit bringing truth and love to our hearts, we then make choices to participate in God's treatment plan or to go back and reinfect ourselves with fear and selfishness. But our choices don't provide the remedy, don't provide the truth, don't provide a new heart, don't provide a right spirit. All that's a gift that comes from God when we trust him. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. Peter was visiting the Christian communities through the coastal region of Judea. His purpose was probably to give them doctrinal instructions Acts 2.42. But God used him powerfully to perform miracles in the same fashion as those performed by Jesus himself. <clears throat> what do you understand the paragraph to be saying? That Peter was doing what? As you read that and hear that, what do you, what do you understand they're suggesting Peter was doing? Giving doctrinal instruction means what to you? When you hear that description, what in your mind is conjured up? What's the idea that you hear being connoted? Teaching rules. Teaching rules. Teaching rules. Okay. Say sharing the gospel, really. 
sharing the gospel. So you hear sharing the gospel as doctrinal instruction is the same. You hear those synonyms. Uh, yeah, I don't at all. <laughs> doctrinal instructions, uh, you know, there's another word that has that built right in. It's called indoctrinate or indoctrination. Do you hear indoctrinate and indoctrination is the same thing as spreading the gospel? Do you hear those the same? I don't either. I tend to hear doctrine as more along indoctrination than I hear gospel. But I checked it out, and let's see what the actual scripture says, Acts 2.42. This is, uh, I think, again from the NIV. It says, the devote, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, the fellow, and the, to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, if you actually look up the definition of the word doctrine, its most basic meaning means teaching. That's what it means, the teaching. So certainly, if you want to just be very general, anything you teach anybody on any level is doctrine. It's just teaching. Okay, that certainly can be true. It's not the way I've come to understand it in religious circles that it's just teaching of any kind. It usually has the connotation of systematic teaching. Yes, okay. Uh, but th this basic root word can mean any form of teaching. But when I hear doctrine, I don't typically think things like this. And see if you do. A nutritionist is teaching a person how to make healthy meal choices. Do you, th hear, do you, do you hear that as teaching them doctrine? A tennis instructor is teaching somebody how to, to serve properly. Do you think of doctrine in that? No. A, a, a physical therapist is teaching a patient which strength exercises to do and how to do them. Are you thinking he's teaching them doctrine? Most people do not. Most people don't think that's doctrine. Now, it can be. It's a teaching. Okay? But uh, am I wrong? Do most of you think that type of thing is doctrine? No. no. So the word doctrine in its purest form does mean any type of teaching. It could mean that. But that's not how we typically think of it. We typically think of, I think, systematic creeds, rules, fundamental beliefs, constructs, frameworks, ways of perceiving, lenses that you process the world through. Marxist doctrine. Right. You can have a Marxist doctrine. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a way to, to structure and shape your mind is what often comes to mind when you think of doctrinal teaching. Here's the right way to think about the world. Here's not the right way to think about the world. Which to me is a lot different than the gospel message. Of course, the gospel message, when you come to understand it truly, does change your worldview, doesn't it? Okay? But it's not necessarily done in a systematic way. The true gospel message is a life-changing experience. I liked what they called early Christian. The beliefs they had, they called it the way. I thought that's a really nice way of approaching it. Uh, before they, they, didn't, they weren't called Christians at the time, but they, they called it the way. So do you think... What the, they were introducing people to was a different way to go than what they had gone So with that in mind, do you think Peter was primarily teaching them a 28 fundamental systems of beliefs and doctrines that they have to adhere to, or was he teaching them a healthier way to understand reality and to live their lives? What do you think it was? A system of cognitive constructs that they adhere to primarily, or a way of thinking about how reality works? I think it was the latter. 
Here's reality. We have this problem. We are dead in trespass and sin. There's nothing we can do to fix this. God is love. He's the creator. He's the builder of reality. He sent his son to fix what we could not fix. If you trust his son, then the spirit will come and begin transforming you. This is reality. It's not, do you believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that they all have equal powers and we're going to detail those out. I don't think they had a lot of discussions about the Trinity in the apostolic church. Do you? Do you? No, but they experienced it. So consider then what Peter might have been teaching them from 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 15. And see, see what, you, what you hear. There, this is Peter writing. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Christ Jesus is revealed. Be as obedient children. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Does it sound like he's primarily describing the 28 things you have to attest to before you can get baptized? Or is he primarily describing a way of living, a way of, 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 of applying God's methods into your life? And that's kind of what conversion is, too. You were going this way, and now you're going that way. You've made an about turn. Now you're facing God and going towards him and appreciating him and loving him. Whereas before, you were turned the other way, away from him, towards death and destruction. So so why is this an important distinction I'm trying to, to, to tease apart here? There's an important distinction I'm trying to make, and why is it important? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that if your beliefs don't have real-world application that brings healing and transformation to your life, there's something wrong with the belief. Godly beliefs are always in harmony with God's character, which is always in harmony with God's design, which always leads you back to the source of truth, which always leads you back in harmony with his protocols for life, which always results in healing and restoration. Just like the laws of health. If you break the laws of health, you can't avoid unhealthy consequences. However, if you live in harmony with the laws of health, you can't avoid the benefits. If your belief systems don't have real-world applications, there's something wrong. I have many patients in marriages in which they struggle. I'm going to give you a real-world application to distorted Christian belief systems and healthy ones. Often, there is marked fear and insecurity, fear of rejection, fear of not being loved, fear of not... Uh, of the spouse not finding them uh, attractive enough or finding someone else more attractive. This fear is driven by a personal sense of inadequacy. Often comes out, though, in suspiciousness, accusation, monitoring of the other. You don't think I'm pretty, do you? You think I'm fat. You don't really want to be married to me. You'd rather be married to somebody else, wouldn't you? You looked at that other person. I saw you looking at that other person. You thought they were more attractive than me. It comes out like this. It can even become violent. All the while, the attacking, accusing person claims their love for the one they criticize, accuse, and attack. I love you. I love you so much. That's why I'm afraid you're going to leave me. And I've dealt with many patients 
who are, have this very process going on in their marriage while they claim to be a Christian. And how does their Christianity work? How can that be? See, there's, their belief systems in their Christianity don't have real-world application in how they treat their spouse. The root problem, of course, is fear and selfishness in the heart. And true Christian conversion is dying to self and having fear replaced with love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Where you actually love your spouse more than you are afraid for yourself. That's a converted heart who's capable of doing that. So since we're talking about Peter today, let's give you an example from the life of Peter. Remember in the upper room, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he tells them before um, you know, the night's over, everybody's going to run away and abandon him. And Peter says, not me, Lord, not me. Was Peter lying? No. He was not lying. If you put him on a lie detector, he was sincere. He would have passed the lie. He meant what he said. In his experience, he was being truthful. Does that mean because he was truthful, he was sincere, he meant it, that Jesus could now trust him? Get your mind around that. It's, it's huge. People miss this in relationships all the time. He was sincere. He meant it. You could feel his sincerity. But then if he was telling the truth, he wasn't lying. He wasn't being fraud. How come he couldn't? Because, let me ask you, did Peter love Jesus? But he still loved himself more. So that when he found himself in a situation where, hey, you're one of them under the potential threat of explosion, arrest, uh, prosecution, that's when he's, he's being threatened. Self has to rise up, protect him. No, I don't know the man. I don't know him. Yes, he loved Jesus, but he still, and as long as he loved himself more, Jesus couldn't trust him. And so Jesus says, you can read it in the King James Version in Luke twenty-two thirty-two. But I've prayed for you that your faith not fail. And when you are converted, feed my sheep or strengthen my brethren. When you're converted? Three and a half years walking with Christ, performing miracles, walked on water. When you're converted? What's it mean? When you finally die to self. And love me more than self. And Peter did that. After his denial, he went out and wept bitterly and died to self. This is the same thing Jacob experienced when he wrestled with the angel tonight. Up to that point, Jacob, if you look at Jacob's life, he's always conning and angling for Jacob. Always covering. And even at the night before, even as it's, your brother and 500 men are approaching, so what's he do? He sends all of his flocks, all of his servants, all of his wives, and all of his kids in front of him to shield him from his brother. Who's he watching out for? Okay. And that night he wrestles with the angel. And if you remember, he wrestles until he, with the angel's help. If you read the Hebrew there, a lot of people misconstrue it. They think it means that he overcame the angel. He overcame. No, he didn't. It was with the angel he overcame himself. That's what happened there. He finally surrendered self and overcame with God's help. And that's, when his, and that's when his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, one who with God overcomes. Same thing with David. After his terrible sin, gets confronted by Nathan. That's when he goes out 
And finally, you read Psalms 51. He's finally converted. You find this experience in the life of all the people who come close to God. Unlike Judas, who also cried and wept and went out and killed himself. And this is Saul on Damascus Road, after the Damascus Road experience. This is the valley of the shadow of death, not the valley of death. If you read the Psalms, the Lord is our shepherd who, who, who provides for us and still waters and green pastures to nurture us when we're down and give us strength. And then when we're strong enough, he leads us in the path of righteousness for his glorious namesake to restore our souls, for our soul restoration. Then we enter the, patter, fa- the valley of the shadow of death, the valley in which it feels like we're dying on the inside. But his rod and his staff are there to protect us. We're not going to die if we trust him, but we often don't because it's so overwhelming. We run back to our addiction, our old coping strategies, and we get weak and we get hurt, and then we cry out, and he takes us back to the green pastures and still waters, strengthens us up, and then begins to lead us in the path of righteousness so that he can be glorified in healing and restoring us, and our souls can be restored, and we have to come back and face that place again to die to self. But then he anoints our head with oil, the Holy Spirit, to enlighten, to strengthen, to renew. He prepares a table before us to str- in, the, in the face of those who don't like us. And we dwell in the Lord's house forever. This is what the psalm is all about, this dying to self. Yes, Linda. If you really look at those verses, you'll notice that he does this. He leads me the path of wonderful things. After the valley of the shadow of death, he all, that person always refers to God as you. You do this. You do that. You do. It's become very personal. For it was like he does all these wonderful things and now to you do it. Nice. So this doctrinal instruction many people are given and why these Christian folks come in with these marriages in which they're constantly accusing their spouse, but I love you, I love you. It's because they're told conversion isn't what I've described. Here's what conversion is. They're told that sin is bad stuff, doing bad behavior, which gets you in trouble with the legal heavenly administration, legal trouble with the heavenly administration, which puts you on death row on the universe, and conversion means accepting the legal blood payment of Jesus to the heavenly governor. So that the record books of heaven, in the record books of heaven, your name is moved from the roles of the condemned to the roles of the legally pardoned. That's what they're taught. I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. I was saved back in boot camp. I was saved back in high school. I was saved. I was saved. I was saved. I'm legally now pardoned. There's nothing going on in the heart. There's no transformation happen. There's no regeneration. There's just this legal accounting mechanism. And this is back if your doctrines and beliefs don't have some real world application, there's something wrong. The lesson at the bottom says, some people think that if they only could see real miracle, such as what happened in the apostolic times, they, they would believe. And though at times miracles help lead some people to faith, the Bible is filled with stories of those who saw miracles and still did not believe. On what then should our faith be based? Should our faith, faith be based on miracles? Well, what is faith? What is faith? Well, I looked it up in the dictionary. You know there's eight definitions for faith. I'm going to read them real quick, and I want you to think as I read them, is this the Bible faith that I'm supposed to have, or is this not the Bible faith I'm supposed to have? Which one of them represents the faith that I believe is the Christian faith? Number one, confidence or trust in a person or thing. Number two, belief that is not based on proof. 
Three, belief in God or in the doctrines or teachings of religion. You might be tempted with that one. If you are being tempted with that one, just remember James, the devils believe and tremble. You might be tempted with that one because it almost sounds good. Belief in God or in the doctrine or teachings of religion. Four, belief in anything as a code of ethics, standards, or standards of merit. For instance, to believe of the same faith of someone concerning honesty. Five, a system of religious belief, the Christian faith, the Jewish faith. Six, the obligation of loyalty or fidelity to a person, promise, or engagement. Failure to appear would be a break in faith. Seven, the observance of this obligation, fidelity to one's promise or oath. He was the only one who proved his faith during the recent troubles. Eight, Christian theology, the trust in God and his promises as made through Christ and the scriptures by which humans are justified or saved. When we speak of our faith in God, biblical faith, what our faith is to be based on, do we mean all eight definitions? Which apply? Well, don't we at least mean, number one, confidence or trust in a person or thing? And then, number eight, which seems to kind of focus that confidence and trust in trust in God and his promises as made through Christ. So they focus it where the trust, but eight is just a focusing of one, isn't it? So one and eight would apply. But clearly, some of these others do not. How about loyalty to a person? As in a breach of faith. Disloyalty, yeah. How about, though, what do you think the most common definition held around the world is for faith? You guys have already established it's one and eight, and perhaps it's, but, but number two is the most common. And number two, belief without evidence or proof. Believe in what you know ain't so. As, as, uh, yeah, as Mark Twain said, believe in what you know ain't so. This is not Bible faith. In the warfare between Christ and Satan, how much truth is on God's side and how much truth is on Satan's side? It's not an abstract question. It's an answerable, definable question. How much truth is on God's side? How much on Satan's side? None. So if you're in the position with no truth, do you want people investigating evidence? Or do you want people to believe without evidence? Okay, so this idea that our faith is believing without evidence is a fraud. It's a lie that sounds very pious. I have enough faith. I don't need evidence. Read number six again, would you? Okay. The obligation of loyalty or fidelity to a person or promise in, um, failure to appear would be a break in faith. So you could do that. If, if you could apply that in our relationship with God, that if we trust him, then we take certain actions. And if we br- break that trust, we can break that trust. So our faith then is not only something we do cognitively, it's something we do operationally. Our faith then has works, as the Bible says. Okay. But, so I think that's applicable too, yeah. For me, a lot of these things break down to the point of making presumptions about something that you believe to be true. Yeah, presumptions, preconceived ideas. Like faith in evolution, for example. A lot of people have faith in evolution because somebody told them you add enough zeros to it and it could happen. You know, millions and millions of years ago, 
order could go, disorder could go to order, even though we don't, we always see order go to disorder, but if you put a lot of zeros past it, people will take that on faith. Maybe that could happen. Yeah, and this goes back to the idea that uh, you can't trust yourself to think and evaluate evidence, that somebody who's got a higher education, somebody who's got a degree behind their name, actually has a better ability to think than you do, and you trust your thinking to somebody else. That's not a godly way to approach it. So, is trusting, now think about this, your trusting or having confidence or having faith, it all means the same thing, in a trustworthy being that you personally know, notice the caveats, you trusting a trustworthy being that you personally know with or without evidence. If you do that, is that something you're doing with or without evidence? That's with evidence. That's right. It is with evidence. Get your mind around that. That's why life eternal, John 17, 3, life eternal is that you may live for eons and eons of time and never die. Is that what Jesus said? Life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and now sent. Because God is truly trustworthy. When you personally know him, then you have experience which becomes evidentiary of his good, absolute uh, reliability and trustworthiness. And thus you put your trust in him based on evidence, not based on a lack of evidence. And the uh, best places to get this evidence? Scripture. Nature, science, and experience. All three harmonized. Monday's lesson, second paragraph. It's important to know that Peter's vision was not about food, but about people. Yes, it was around noon. Peter was hungry, and the voice told him to kill and eat. Yet God used the vision not to remove the distinctions between clean and unclean meats, but to teach Peter about the inclusive nature, character of the gospel. How can we know that this vision, because it is an argument within Christianity, that this vision was about removing distinctions between clean and unclean meats? How can we know with 100% certainty that wasn't the case? So the next chapter is an interpretation of the application of bringing the Gentiles in, so you could use that. I, I like something even more reliable than the interpretive per- portion, but I, that's very consistent. So what about the laws of health? You see, it is true that you can eat anything in this world you want and not be ceremonially unclean. That's absolutely true. But you can eat anything you want and be healthy. That's not true. And that's the big misunderstanding with, with a lot of Christian folks is that, well, ceremonial law is done away with anything. You can if you're not worried about health. But the laws of health are still in operation. They have not changed. And there is a reason that some animals were, were described as clean and some as unclean. And the reason he codified it in their system was not just for ceremonial purposes, but because he wanted them to be the healthiest. And if you look at many of their ceremonial laws, they had to do with how they handled waste products how they handled uh, 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 garments with blood that became a bacterial um, breeding ground and so forth and so on. And, and would we say, well, now that ceremonial law is done away with, we, can, we don't need to wash our hands, we don't need to take care of proper sanitation and sewage, and we can, we can take our bloody garments and just leave them around. It, it doesn't really matter because ceremonial law is done away with. No, people don't do that. We actually have codified into the human civil code all types of uh, sanitation laws and how to handle these things. And it's all based on the laws of health. And so we can know that there was no, he was not doing away with this distinction because the laws of health are still in force. And the science has told us that it really does make a difference physiologically to your health, what foods you eat. Third paragraph, 
The vision was explicitly intended to break Peter's resistance against Gentiles. Peter's view was that if he entered Cornelius' house and fellowshiped with him, he would defile himself and so become unfit to worship in the temple or come, uh, come before God's presence. First century Jews from Judea and the surrounding areas did not associate with uncircumcised Gentiles. Let me ask you, do, do you think there's some accuracy to this description that Peter was struggling with this issue? Yes, he was. That's why he was given the vision, sure. Okay, that's why Paul had to correct him in other places. Now, let me ask you this, though. When Peter had this vision, when Peter's being instructed by God, here described in Acts, this story, had Peter been converted yet? Yes. Yes, Peter was converted. This was after his conversion. Had Peter had the empowerment and infilling and the special way of Pentecostal pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon him? Had he had that? Yes. Get your mind around with the implications then. Here is a converted person. Here is an apostle of the Lord. Here is an inspired individual. Here is a person who has a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Did he have everything right? He doesn't know everything. That's the situation of all of us. And there's very, very powerful instructions if you reason through this now for us. One, it gives us insight into how God and the Holy Spirit actually work in, in transforming healing individuals. Did Peter have ideas attitudes, beliefs that he held for many, many years before he met Jesus Christ and before his conversion, did he, did he have many of those biases and prejudices and so forth? Yes, he did. Did accepting Jesus as his Savior and even being filled by the Spirit of truth mean an immediate erasure of all his long-standing beliefs, biases, and attitudes? No. It only meant that he had a new heart that was willing and longing to grow and advance and understand and move in the direction of godliness. His heart was no longer resistant. It was open to be led and instructed rather than uh, a closed mind and heart who defended against truth. But this is important that, that you understand why all of these misunderstandings, all these distortions, all these pre-biases and so forth were not immediately erased. There's a reason why they weren't. What would happen to a person's individuality, their unique personhood, their identity, if they had their beliefs, memories, perspectives, attitudes erased by some other intelligent being and replaced without their choice? What would happen? So you've been brainwashed. That person would be destroyed. Their individuality would be, it wouldn't be them anymore. So the only way for God to retain you in your unique personhood is to present truth and love in persuasive ways that you are left free to choose to internalize, update, change with your own free will choices. This is why it says in Romans 14.5 that every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. Because people convinced against their will are... Yes, go ahead. So I can think of numerous times in the Bible when God gave a direct command to someone and the person argued with God. Yes. And that's because they had to work through that process of becoming persuaded. That's right. That's exactly right. So the first point we learn from this is God's methods, which are beautiful methods if you understand how God works. It gives you, if you really understand this, it gives you self confidence to live in a kingdom where somebody with absolute power isn't going to overwrite your individuality. It's not going to erase your experiences, but wants you to grow into the knowledge and truth that transforms you to be a healthy person. The second point, which is also, I think, important to learn, is that even God's apostles and prophets, inspired spokespersons and penmans, hold wrong ideas that need correcting. 
Thus, we're never to surrender our thinking to another person, including a proven prophet of God. Amen. Amen. And I'm going to tell you, Seventh-day Adventists have more work to do on this, the application of this, than most Christians do. They need to reevaluate their mindsets, beliefs, attitudes, and approaches to how they understand the writings of Ellen White. Because within many Adventist circles, they have accepted that Ellen White was an inspired penman or prophet or spokesperson for God with a special message for the end time people on earth. Many Adventists have that view and then surrender their own thinking to what, what the red leather books say. If Ellen White wrote it or said it, who am I to question it? So we have to be a little bit careful because the Lord does, and there are many examples in the Bible where he has given a command to someone who really fully understands that command and still obeyed. I think, I think we could probably think of ten examples right now. That doesn't mean that we should silence our thinking but there are things that we do that we don't understand fully. Okay, that really doesn't speak to the question that I'm speaking to here. I, or unless you are saying, yes, we shouldn't think. We should, if Ellen White wrote it, we should accept it and do it. Don't question it. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that there are times when we don't fully understand a command of God. Yes. And if Ellen White wrote it, does that make it a command of God? <laughs> I'm not addressing that. I'm speaking to Bible. I'm okay. Okay. So if Moses wrote it, does that make it a command of God? It's in Genesis. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in Leviticus. Moses wrote first five books there. Does that make it a command of God that we should follow? You can probably think of things in the Bible that are not commands of God. I'm sure you can. Do that. Oh, but there's directives like in Deuteronomy where Moses specifically directed them that they should take their tithe and buy fermented wine, bring it to church, and celebrate before the Lord by drinking it. That's a direct command. Should we take that? And well, that God's spokesperson wrote it. Who are we to question it? We shouldn't think about that. We should just do it. So oh, am I? Oh, no. or, but see, you're, you're wanting us. We don't fully understand it. That, that, that goes against our human understanding. That's an intoxicant. We don't, we should, but should we question and think? Or should we say, well, you know what? It's not our place. We should do things we don't fully understand. And since I don't fully understand why that's sensible, I should still probably do it. I'm trying to apply your logic here. I'll give this some thought, but I am quite sure that there are numerous examples in the Bible where God gave a command to someone who did not fully understand that command and did it anyway and was honored for that. But then what's the point of every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind regarding religious practices? That's what the whole context of Romans 14 is. This example right here, Peter did not fully understand. Oh, yes, he was being brought to understand. That's what he was doing. This was all about... But he was obeying as he was being brought to, be, to understand. But he understood that he needed to rethink and reprocess this, and that's what he started doing. The real point wasn't simply go to Cornelius. The real point was through the going to Cornelius, you need to reframe and rethink, and that's what he was doing. He was going to Cornelius at the command of God when he didn't fully understand why he was being sent here. Okay. So we see the same problem with Abraham being instructed to go sacrifice Isaac. But if you actually read the context on his journey there, and you read what the scripture says, he wrestled through it and came to understand. He had an understanding. And that's that, because he was obeying, he was in the process of obeying. And that commonly happens, that when we do what God asks us, we don't understand immediately. We 
And so what happens if we get an instruction from God that we don't understand and we say no to it? Then what happens? I'm not going to do it because I don't understand it. Then what happens? Jonah's experience. You're going where I'm going. What did you say? Jonah. So Jonah gets a command. He doesn't like it. He doesn't understand it. What's he do? Yes. And so what happened? God intervened some more, reeled him in, gave him more evidences, more time, more experiences, more life issues that he had to wrestle through to come to another understanding. But he had to change his understanding. It wasn't simple, blind obedience. This idea that God simply wants us to obey. In fact, I will tell you in Psalms chapter 33, Psalms, excuse me, 32, um, verses, I think around seven or eight or nine, right in there. It says, I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will lead you my ways. Don't be like a horse or a donkey who has to be led around by a bridle or a bit. So are you teaching we should never do a command that we don't understand? So you like the absolute circumstances here. No, I am. I, I think that you should not follow an instruction that you aren't sure is coming from God. And you have understanding that is in harmony with his purposes and will. You don't have to have understanding of the ultimate outcome, what God's divine purposes are, but you should understand that it's God that's asking you, and God has, uh, is directing you, and it's in harmony with his purposes and wills. You should have that understanding. If you don't have that understanding, what are you doing? You are terribly qualified, as I would do also if I had an opportunity. But you go ahead with your talk tonight. <laughs> You notice this conversation started. What caused this urgency to have to clarify this? What was the thing I put on the table that made this an urgent issue to clarify? How Seventh-day Adventists deal with the writings of Ellen White. Because we're uncomfortable questioning Ellen White. Ellen White said it. We're we're indoctrinated. We're taught in our thinking that she becomes the the authority. She becomes the the, uh, resource of last resort that when we have a debate, if we can find a quote from her that says it in a certain way, then that we can feel peace now because she's confirmed it for us. And many people approach it this way. Rather than realizing that Ellen White was just like Peter, a human being with a good heart, who wanted to grow and follow God's will, who was willing to do the work God called her for her life to fulfill and do, but who didn't, was not omnipotent, who was not omniscient, who didn't know everything, who had a lot of growing in her life. And I gave, I think a few weeks ago, a long list of stuff that she grew in from the time that most Adventists would consider her now having a prophetic gift, having visions from the Lord. There's many things over the years that she grew in that she didn't have from the beginning, from Going from Sunday keeping, when she was doing before, when she first started having her visions, and later she started keeping the Sabbath, to the dietary changes that she made, many, many things that she began to change and update her beliefs on that she grew in over time. And it's important we recognize this because those who hold a certain view different than what we teach in this class will go to her earlier writings where she was still very immature in her journey, like Peter. We had some writings of Peter that were talking about his views on Jew and Gentile relations prior to what we're reading here in Acts, and he had written it down somewhere, and we could go and reference those. Well, Peter says, and that's what happens in a lot of Adventism. They reference some things that are very much different than what she wrote later in life. And the big stuff that she really wrote was after 1888, the uh, Righteous by Faith new perspective on things. 
And the leadership, which had a very, if you look at the history of the Adventist church, the leadership, which had a very forensic, authoritarian view, did not like her new perspectives. And so what did the leadership do? They say, we don't want you in North America anymore. We want you to go down and minister in Australia. So if you think about the, the 19th century, where on planet Earth can you send somebody, if you live in North America, to get them as far away from you as you can get? So they shifted her to Australia. And in Australia, over the next 10 years, she not only started a food industry and a, and a college and Christian education and so many other things, she wrote four major works. Steps to Christ, Desire of Ages, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, Christ Object Lessons, four major works. And if you read those, they all teach what we teach. These are her later life works. They teach these perspectives. Additionally, when she wrote Steps to Christ, she published it. She didn't put it to the church for publication. She published it herself. She wasn't comfortable at that time with the church publishing the work. She thought it might get changed? I'm not sure about that. There was also tensions with some of the people in the church who didn't want to publish it. They were uncomfortable with what was in it too. So it was, both sides were, were not necessarily at peace. And so the first publication of Steps to Christ, she, she sought a, I shouldn't say publisher herself, she got a non-Adventist church publisher to publish it. Very interesting stuff. So I'm suggesting that as we grow in our relationship with God, that every person is to be fully persuaded in their own mind. I've got something else to jump to. We've got to jump ahead. I can't get, can't get there. We've got to close on this. Um, Okay, and this goes into Wednesday's lesson. Wednesday's lesson, and it uh, points out that at Antioch, the followers of Jesus were first called Christians in a derogatory way, but then later became uh, to embrace that, that moniker and called themselves Christians. And the lesson asks, what does it mean to you today to be called a Christian? What about your life is truly Christian? What is it that is differently about you than non-Christians in the, uh, in the world. And so, what does it make you a Christian? I have a whole long list of possibilities here, and I know you'll, you guys will reject most of these. But uh, smoking, not, uh, you're a Christian if you don't smoke and don't use illegal drugs. That's the deal. Or not, no alcohol, or just not becoming drunk. Uh, that, that, that's, the, that's the differentiation. Vegetarian diet or kosher, or you can eat anything because we're free in Christ, and so that's a demarcation of Christianity, to eat anything. Or how about dress? Are there any dress requirements that, that, we, we, that set us apart as Christian? What about uh, going to church? Is church attendance what it means? And, and if so, uh, is it denominational attendance that set us apart? How about regular fellowship with believers in someone's home but never going to an organized church? Could they be Christian? What about observing religious holidays, weekly Sabbaths? Is, is that what it means to be a Christian? How about partaking communion, foot washing, or other ceremonies? How about being kind, honest, patient, Loyal, faithful, forgiving, generous, helpful, refusing to slander, refusing to gossip, ministering to the less fortunate. Well, uh, John Wesley uh, was asked what it means to make a Methodist, and he answered the following. What then is a mark? Who is a Methodist according to your own account? I answer, a Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Ghost given to him. One who loves the Lord, his God, with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his mind, and with all his strength. God is the joy of his heart and the desire of his soul, which is constantly crying out, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth I desire besides thee, my God, and my all. Thou art my strength of my heart and my portion forever. If any man, any man says, Why, these are only the common fundamentals and principles of Christianity. 
Thou hast said, and so I mean. This is the very truth. I know they are no other, and I would go, and I would to God, both thou and all men knew that I and all who follow my judgment do vehemently refuse to be distinguished from other men by any but the common principles of Christianity, the plain old Christian Christianity that I teach, renouncing and detesting all other marks of distinction. And whoever is, whoever is what I preach, let him be called what he will, for names change not the nature of things. He is a Christian, not in name only, but in heart and in life. He is inwardly and outwardly conformed to the will of God, as revealed in the written word. He thinks, speaks, and lives according to the method laid down in the revelation of Jesus Christ. His soul is renewed after the image of God in the righteousness in righteousness and in all true holiness, and having the mind that was in Christ, so he walks as Christ also walked. Wow. What do you think? What do you think about what John Wesley wrote? What is it that marks you as a Christian? Is a true Christian one who walks like Christ walked, who has a heart? It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is the only distinction that really matters. In the end of days, they will be divided into two groups. The righteous and the wicked, the sheep and the goats, the faithful and the harlot, the, uh, the, the fruitful vine and the withered vine. There's two groups. And Jesus said very clearly about the ones on the right and the ones on the left. And what is it that made the distinction? As you lived, loved. As you what? As you, how you treated others. As you did it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. That's what makes it. It never says where you went to church, what food you ate, and all these other things. Not that they don't have a place in overall healthful living, but they're not a demarcation of a true Christian. Because there are many people in the liberal left today who don't believe in God who are into healthful living. Well, I had some more uh, comments about that, but we're out of time. And we didn't even get into the question of whether God punished Herod, as it says in Thursday's lesson. Uh, it suggests that God... Uh... <laughs> do you want me to stop or go for a couple minutes more? Okay, we'll just do a couple minutes more. Um, it says in the lesson, we'll jump to Thursday's lesson. We'll, well, let me finish up on the point we were just talking about what it means to be a Christian. I've heard some um, Adventists suggest... Uh, that Muslims, when they hear uh, Christian, they think that a Christian is somebody who goes to church on Sunday, eats pork, and drinks alcohol, and hates Muslims. <laughs> that's what I've heard some people suggest, and that if you, as an Adventist, ever approach my Muslim, you don't tell them you're a Christian, you tell them you're an Adventist, and that you go to church on Saturday, you don't eat pork, and you don't uh, drink alcohol, and you, don't hate and you don't hate Muslims, and they will say, this is what I've been told, I've never tried it, and they will say that you're not, well, then you're a person of the book. You follow the book. Why yourself as a person of the book? Yes, a person of the book. Well, um, the only one of those three that really separate a true Christian from not Christian is whether you hate Muslims or not. Do you understand? A true Christian can go to church on Sunday. A true Christian can eat pork. And a true Christian can drink alcohol. But a true Christian cannot hate Muslims. Thursday's lesson talks about uh, Herod, uh, Herod's execution of James, and then uh, in the uh, bottom paragraph, um, 
Yeah, next we find the story of Agrippa's death in Caesarea. Attempts have been made to identify the cause of his death, peritonitis, an ulcer, even poison. Yet Luke is clear in saying that the king died because of divine judgment. So if you look at Acts chapter 12, 21 through 23, it says, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of God, not of man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. So what's the problem with this view? Well, first off, what is the punishment for sin according to Scripture? Eternal non-existence or death, second death. And that punishment, according to Scripture, doesn't happen until after the great white throne judgment. Neither one of those things happened to Herod. He died the first death from which he'll be resurrected, and the judgment hadn't happened. So this isn't punishment for sin, as some would like us to believe. Secondly, if you, it says the angel of the Lord struck him down. Um, I think that's what it said there. What was the exact words? Uh, yeah, and the angel of the Lord struck him down. Well, what would you say about this? First Chronicles 10, 3, 13 and 14. And you, you know Saul died by falling on a sword and committing suicide after a battle that failed, right? And that's how he died. And it says that in 1 Chronicles 10, 4 through 6, that he fell on his own sword and committed suicide. And then later in the very same chapter, it says this. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David's son, Jesse. So could one read those two verses... And then make a, a, a doctrine, a teaching, that if you're unfaithful to the Lord, like Saul, God will use his power to put you to death. You could base it on those words, couldn't you? And many people think this. But if you read the chapter before, it informs you. Now, unless you believe that, that Saul didn't want to die, even though he's asked his armor bearer to run him through, and his armor bearer wouldn't do it, I think it gives you an indication of his intent. But, but, but maybe Saul was trying to resist, and there was an angel forcing him down onto a sword. Is that what was happening? No, Saul did this of his own free will, yet the Bible describes it as God putting him to death. There's a convention, if you will, in, old, in, in Bible writing that anything God permits or doesn't actively stop is the will of God or God's doing. This is a convention, and you re- hear, see it right here. God didn't stop him, but God didn't also initiate or cause it. But because God didn't stop it in their mindset, therefore it's the same as God doing it, so God put him to death. Do you think that the New Testament writers writing to these people in this time set were primarily Jewish is using the same convention? I think he is. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is the creator God of all life, who is love, who is totally trustworthy, whose laws are the laws upon which reality work. And we, yes, Lord, we were born in sin, conceived in we born with a condition we didn't choose. But praise God that you sent Christ to remedy this condition. And we ask that your spirit will take his victories and reproduce them in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, and that we can go forward, not only with new motives and new desires, but new wisdom, new insight, new efficiency, and be able to communicate these truths to a world that's still stuck in much misunderstanding so the light can go forward and the world can be uh, enlightened and we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.